If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 21, that's where we're going to study the Word of God this morning. Genesis chapter 21, such a privilege to open God's Word and to trust that He will use it to meet us and to build us up. Genesis chapter 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read on to to verse 7. Genesis chapter 1, 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his word this morning. The 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, was said to be a man of few words. He did not just talk to talk, as some people we might know, but he made his point and left it at that. In fact, before becoming president, he attended a dinner party as vice president and frustrated everyone at the table by how little he talked. It was a long dinner party, much like you might expect in Washington, and the lady sitting next to him commented on how quiet he had been all evening. She asked him, why aren't you talking to me? She went on and insisted, you must talk to me. She even went on to divulge that she had made a bet with her friends that she could get Calvin Coolidge to say more than two words to her. At the end of the dinner party, Mr. Coolidge turned to her and said, you lose. (laughs) In a similar way, there are some texts of Scripture that just seem to be only a few words. Now, there are some texts in Scripture that are quite wordy, Psalm 119 or Ezekiel 16 or Matthew 1 and all those begats, but there are others that contain just a few words. Our text is one of those texts. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham, said he was going to make him a father of many nations. And since Genesis 12, uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, has been telling us again and again, repeatedly reminding us, if you read through those chapters, that there is a promise coming to Abraham. There is a son coming. And after eight chapters of repeatedly reminding us about this promise, Genesis 21 Devote seven simple verses to telling us the promised son has arrived. In fact, Genesis 21 says little more than that Sarah conceived 
Sarah gave birth and Sarah laughed. You know, we might find ourselves like the lady sitting next to Calvin Coolidge saying, come on, Moses, give us a little more. What was going on? What was the scene like? Don't you have more to say about this son who has come? After all the buildup, after all the promises and the drama and the tension, seven verses is all we get. But the key to this text is not in what it doesn't say, but in what it does. It carefully, almost quietly underlines the, the unfailing promise of God. It reminds us of the promise and quietly tells us how the promise came to pass just as God promised all along. It seemed like things were out of control, that Abraham was too old, that he needed to look somewhere else to one of his concubines for an heir, that he needed to figure things out for himself, but the promise of God was actually never uncertain. It's important to remember that this text is specifically for us. One guy said to me this morning, I didn't expect a sermon on these texts this morning. Well, God's speaking to us. God's addressing us. God's calling us to trust His unfailing promise, urging us to take up His Word and to take Him by His Word, urging us to trust Him. Again and again, we know the promises of Scripture. I'll never leave. I'll never forsake you. I'll supply every need of yours. I'll deliver you. No good thing will I withhold from you. All things will work together for good. And all that He has promised is no less certain today. All that He has spoken is in fact no less certain today. In fact, it's even more certain because of the yes and amen that come to us through Jesus Christ. And so, in a lot of ways, where we're going to unpack this is, is what God's saying to us, how to, how to walk by faith. In a word, where we're going is take God at His word and everything else will fall into place. Take God at His word, everything else will fall into place. I think there's keys to living by faith in these Seven simple verses that are vital for all of us. So kind of three headings that, to live by faith. One is God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. That's what we're going to see in verses one and two. We see that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. The Lord visited, the Lord, the Lord manifested himself, uh, uh, much like he visited Mary and, she and Sarah conceived, bore a son. Sarah had, finally has the child she had longed for. Abraham finally has the heir that he had longed for. And this text is underlying that God's promise overcomes every difficulty. Now, before we know, and if you know the story of, of Genesis, you know this quite well. Before we're told uh, that God made a promise to Abraham, we're told that Sarah is barren. Back in Genesis 11, it says Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so the, 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 the difficulty is set up. A few verses later, we're told that God promises to make Abraham a great nation. So there's introduced into the story of Genesis this wonderful drama. How is Abraham to become a great nation if his wife can't have a child? Years go by and she doesn't have a child. They just keep going by. She doesn't have a child. And in fact, God comes to him and says, I'm going to change your name. 
Your name was Abram, which means exalted father. Now I'm going to change it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So he changed his name, but he still has no child. I imagine Abraham going to a restaurant to, to make a reservation. I would like to, you know, I'd like a table. What's your name, sir? Abraham. How many are in your party? Two. Two? What? Where are all the kids? I have none. But the promise, it's not just barrenness. The promise, or the problem and the tension is age. We're told that Abraham is 75 years old when he receives a promise. He's 86 years old when Ishmael is born to one of Sarah's servants. Abraham turns 100 and still has no child. Sarah makes it all the way up to 90. As we're sometimes painfully aware, the ability to conceive and carry a child does not increase or even remain the same as you age. It declines. When the Lord comes to him at 100 and says he's going to have a child, Abraham laughs. He falls, uh, uh, Genesis 17, he falls on his faith and laughs. He said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? One chapter later, when, when Sarah hears about the promise, she laughs too. The Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child, is what she said, now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If we return back to the passage, what this passage is underlining is that the promise of God is not stopped by difficulty. It's not thwarted by barrenness. It's, it doesn't wear out. <laughs> with age. Is anything too hard for, for the Lord? The promises of God does not depend on anything outside of God, and God is not limited by anything. So to his promise overcomes every difficulty, but it also overcomes disobedience. The crushing reality at times with life is life is not just filled with twists and turns, it's filled with ditches too that we stumble into. One of my favorite songwriters that I share with Devin. Jason Isbell says, and we may have this for you, uh, from the sky, the highway straight as it could be, a string pulled home from Tennessee. Pulled, pulled from home to Tennessee, and people in my church say, uh-huh, when I say that. And still somehow those ditches got a better part of me. From the sky, the highway straight as it could be. You know, if you're, you're picking up the Genesis for the first time, you might think that Genesis 12 to 21 is a straight line, much like a string pulled from Alabama to Tennessee. But it's not like that at all, is it? It's a long road filled with many difficulties and ditches after receiving the promise when passing through Egypt. Just, just verses later, just a little bit later, Abraham's passing through Egypt, scared for his life. And he says, well, when you meet these guys, just tell them you're my sister. That way he would be protected and the promise might still be fulfilled to him, even though it might cost him his wife. Years pass and Sarah no longer trusts God. She doesn't believe God's going to give her a child, so she hands her servant to Abraham. She said, go into her that, that she might have children for you. What they're doing, they're kind of scheming to get the promise to, to have it on their own terms. They're taking matters into their own hands. Later on, again, 
When, when Abraham's passing through the Negev, he, he, he says, tell them you're my sister as well. What's going on? Abraham's disobeying God. He's taking matters into his own hands. He's trying to seize the promise by scheming. And so in so many ways, I think it stretches all the way out to Genesis 21 so that all the difficulty, all the disobedience, and all the delay might run their course. And then God does what he promised all along. Look, look back in verse 1 and 2 one more time and you'll see the way it carefully underlines this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. Wonderfully threading through the facts is the careful emphasis upon the promise of God. As God had said, as he had promised, at the time of which he had spoken. Derek Kidner says of the, these verses, the matter of fact style and the emphasis upon what God had said, spoken, and spoken expressed the quiet precision of his control. Genesis 21 is telling us the promise of God has always rested securely in God's control. So the life of faith, we remember God always keeps his promises. Several months ago, my wife and I went to Quebec City and, and visited around Quebec. We went to the Parliament, and Quebec City is the capital of, the, uh, of Quebec, the province of Canada. And Canada, as you know, is part of the United Kingdom, who, now under the rule of King Charles III. When we toured the Parliament and saw, you know, the grand, grand, grandness of the building, all those things, one thing just, just really fascinated me. Uh, we saw this massive scepter which represented the rule of King Charles III. And it's kept in a case, but when the parliament gathers, uh, the president of the parliament walks in and a man walks in behind him carrying the scepter into the middle of the parliament while everyone is standing and they set the scepter down on this table to say that everything that happens inside these proceedings happens under the authority of King Charles III. Just a wonderfully visual, visual reminder of the rule. Well, we have a scepter too. We have the Word of God. John Calvin calls it the scepter. All that happens in this world, all that happens according to God's people happens under His control and under His Word. All that happens, happens in accordance with what God has said and with his complete control. The fight of faith, therefore, is a fight to continually take God at his word. Jerry Bridges, in his little book, um, Is God Really in Control? He says, obeying God is easy. And when you, you grow up, you're a youngster, you think obeying God's the hard stuff. Well, obeying God is get older, it's the easy stuff. Trusting God is hard. He says, obeying God is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will, but trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. Where do we go? I mean, the, 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 the clear boundaries is easy to obey God, but the, the boundarylessness of trusting God is scary. It's hard. Where do we go in the arena that has no boundaries? We go to the Word. We go to the promise. 
We cling to what God has spoken. We say, Lord, I know that no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly, but I need faith to believe it. I know that the sun sets me free indeed, but I need faith to turn and stand on it. I know that those who sow in tears will reap in joy, but I need faith to act on it. God always keeps his promises. Point two, obedience is always best. Another kind of slogan or or handle for walking by faith. Obedience is always best. That's what our text continues and describes Abraham's response of obedience. Look at verse 3. It said, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born, just underlining it did not come through a servant, whom Sarah born, uh, uh, bore him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now notice three times in those verses it says Isaac includes his son's name. Each time, although separated a little bit in verse 3, each time it includes uh, 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 the description his son. His son Isaac. So it's just saying this is the son who was promised. This is the son whom he had waited 25 years. This is the son in whom all the nations will be blessed. But along with that careful emphasis is another emphasis that they underline. It's just that Abraham's obedience, that he named his son, and then that Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old. So he named him and he circumcised his son. Why is it underlining this? Well, several chapters before, the Lord had told him, you shall name your son Isaac. Lord told him, when he's born, you shall circumcise him on the eighth day. And so, so when his son finally is born, Abraham names him Isaac. Then on the eighth day, circumcise him. And in a word, what he's saying is the Lord kept his word and provided a son. And Abraham keeps the Lord's word and circumcises his son. In the life of faith, we remember obedience is always best. Abraham is laying out for us the path of obedience. We don't just walk by obedience when God delivers what he promised. We walk in in obedience all all the way. The life of faith is one in which obedience is always best. Perhaps you've seen uh, uh, or heard of the Arabian night stories like Aladdin or something like that. Aladdin discovers that magic lamp that he rubs I don't know what that is, but he rubs this magic lamp and, and the genie pops out and says, your wish is my command. Wouldn't you like to just have that magic lamp and walk around with you for a day? You know, give me a cup of coffee. Um, the genie is expressing what a servant should express to a master. To hear you is to obey. To hear of your command is to obey your command, to follow it in the life of faith. There's there's meant to be this similar joining of hearing and obeying. They're not meant to be dislocated, as James 1 warns us. They're meant to be joined together. Who are the ones who truly hear? Those who obey. Who are the ones who do the will of God? Who are the ones that are the true children of God? Those who obey, those who do the will of God, as we saw in Mark 3, or you probably have seen in Mark 3. I said at our church because I've preached through Mark 3, but when they, you know, when, when, uh, when uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come to the house and they're knocking on the door trying to get Jesus out, trying to seize him and take him back and teach him a few things, 
Uh, he said, your mother and brother outside. And he says, who are my mothers and brothers? But those who do the will of God, those who obey. Obedience is always best in the life of faith, but it's not always the path we take. I mean, sometimes we just forget to obey. One of my favorite promises in the, in the scriptures is call on me in the day of trouble. I'll rescue you and you will glorify me. I'm, I'm facing a difficult day, difficult meeting, difficult decision. I often pray this promise and, and the Lord delivers me, but how many times do I fail to come back and glorify him? How many times am I like the nine lepers who were healed and didn't turn back to give Jesus thanks? If there's any time Abraham could have forgotten to obey, it's got to be here. He's enamored with this gift of a child, with what he's been waiting for. Nevertheless, he turns to obey. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes I think we just obey halfway. You know, like we don't want to be numbered among those who disobey. No way. So we'll just kind of halfway obey. We'll give some of what we should back to the Lord. We'll confess some of what we should to our spouse. We'll serve in some of the ways we should. We'll do some of what we should. But like Ananias and Sapphira, we'll keep some back. We hold some back. Sometimes we struggle with the same things year after year because change in the Christian life is so painfully slow. But sometimes I fear that we struggle with the same things year after year because we hold back from obeying all the way. Just keep doing like a little bit, a little bit there. Still other times we refuse to obey. Life hits us broadside. Life goes sideways. Our, our hopes are dashed. Our dreams are crushed. I was reading Psalm 102 this morning. Psalmist was saying, I'm like a furnace that is burning. I'm withering like grass. We get knocked down and we have a hard time wondering whether we'll ever get up again. You know, in those moments, the, the question for us is, are we unable to obey or are we unwilling? Are we unable? Are we so faint-hearted, so broken, so discouraged that we cannot know, or we don't know, we, don't, we, don't, we can't get an idea of what the next step would be? And there's certainly times like that in life, so faint-hearted, so broken, so discouraged, that finding the next step is, is uh, painfully hard. But there are other times we're unwilling to obey, so disappointed, so frustrated, so bitter that we don't want the next step. We don't want to make the step. I remember reading the story about John Newton watching his wife slowly die of cancer over several years. And one day, I, I, you know, one day Newton discovered to, for himself that one of the problems getting in the way of his obedience was the sinfulness of his self-pity. He said, I, I believe it was about two or three months before my wife's death when I was walking up and down the room offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress, broken in sorrow and suffering that a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. 
Sometimes the greatest obstacle to the promise of God is, is our willingness to step out and grab it. The blessing and the promise always comes with the step of obedience. And so the, the Word of God calls us. Are you willing to be helped? Are you wallowing in self-pity and sulking? Are you willing to stand up to be encouraged, to be helped? Are you willing to obey? Are you ready to get off the X, so to speak, and to trust Him and walk by faith wonderfully after all that Abraham went through, after all the ways his faith was tested. When Isaac is born, he obeys God. What's under, like he finally gets this child, immediately obeys God in the life of faith. Obedience is always best. It's the way, it's one of the ways we take God at His word. We take up obedience in the process of clinging to, by faith, trusting that everything else will fall into place as we obey Him. So God always keeps His promises. Obedience is always right. Thirdly, the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to, yet to come. So our text kind of focuses on this child. And then, and then these last two verses focus on Sarah and her response to the birth of Isaac. Look at verse 6. She says, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Sarah has said very little the past seven chapters, but what she says here is staggering. Now, if you think back, if you went back to Genesis 16, when the Lord had uh, many years, over a decade, not having the child she wanted, and when she, tur he, uh, she turned and gave her servant to Abraham, she said, the Lord has prevented me from children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her, but here, so the Lord has prevented me. The Lord had thrown up the brick wall, so to speak, but now she says, God has made laughter for me. God has blessed me. God has given me the desire of my heart. God has given me a child. God has given me that heart-scratching uh, heart joy, that moment of being so overwhelmed with joy that you just cannot help but laugh. Oftentimes when you're so overwhelmed with joy, you laugh and cry. It's a really weird emotional moment. You're so overwhelmed, you can't help it. And we all know that feeling. You know, one of the things that always gets me on social media, it found me this week, actually. It didn't find me, I found it, I guess. But I was scrolling through social media, and every time I see one of those videos of a, of a soldier coming home and surprising a kid, it's become kind of a popular pattern, uh, it just blows me away. I saw a soldier come home from war and, and sneak up on his kid. His kid was in a boxing class, and he went in, and he, see, I started losing it, but he went in and started boxing his son and talking to him. And finally, the son just, yeah, he was blindfolded. I don't know why he was blindfolded, but they didn't tell that in the video, but he was blindfolded, and, he, and he, his dad's boxing with him, and finally his son hears that voice enough that he realizes his dad takes the blindfold off, just falls into his arm. That's what's going on here. Sarah's so blown away that God's been so good to her. That God stunned her. All she expected, that life was over. The brick wall had, had been erected and now, but God intervenes and she's overwhelmed. 
so overwhelmed with joy, she cannot help but laugh. In fact, she says, I love it. She said, everyone, look at that, verse 6, everyone who hears will laugh over me. Everyone who hears this story will laugh with me, being amazed. Look at what God has done. Look at verse 7. She continues, who would have said it? That Abraham, to, uh, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Now, there's a, there's a lot of laughter in these verses. The root word for laughter occurs five times, twice in verse 6, once in the, the name Isaac in verse 3, 4, and 5. It's, it's just underlining this passage, filling this passage with laughter to underline the stunning sensation of God fulfilling this, this promise that you never would have imagined. And there's a lot of things going on in these verses. The first thing is the Lord is covering her shame with laughter. You remember the first time Sarah laughed? We mentioned a few minutes ago. She overheard that she would have a child in the next year, and she laughed. She said, There's no way I'm going to have a kid. When the Lord asked her, did you, say, did you laugh? She said, no. She was afraid, what the text says. She was ashamed. The Lord could have said, forget it. I'm moving on from you. She could have thrown it in her face, but that's not what the Lord does. A year later, the Lord gives her a child, and when the Lord decides what the name should be, it should be Isaac, it should be he laughs. So that every time she says his name, she does not remember the time she laughed in disbelief, but she remembers the time she laughed in amazement at God fulfilling his promise. I just love this. She's walking around the house uttering the name Isaac and remembers the Lord fulfilled his promise in an unimaginable way. That's the story of her, laugh, her life now. It's laughter. It's the stunning goodness of God. He doesn't give her what, he deserved, what she deserves. He doesn't expose her. He doesn't make her pay. There's none of that in the Lord. He covers her shame with laughter. Wonderfully, he swallows her joy with laughter as well. Can you imagine waiting 90 years for a child? You know, in, in, in our Western culture, we treat having children kind of like something we can do if we want to, you know. There's plenty of kids here, so I'm, I'm not worried about that here. But, you know, like if it fits into our lifestyle, maybe we'll have kids, you know, if, if it's something we want to do. But in that world, infertility, barrenness couldn't be a more distressing circumstance. She goes 90 years waiting, yet unto her a son is born. All that sorrow is swallowed with joy. I'll never forget years ago, we had a lot of trouble with pregnancy. Uh, my wife, Kim, had a miscarriage. We found out we were pregnant at the pastor's college in June or early June of 2009. A month and a half later, we, we miscarried. In God's kindness, we had our oldest son, Rev, a year later. But after Rev, Kim had two more miscarriages. We, we longed to have a family. We were so discouraged. Uh, we sent off tissue to the specialist to see what was going on. We got blood drawn to see if there was anything to worry about in our genetic makeup. And then Kim got pregnant. <laughs> and while she was pregnant, we, we got these genetic tests, got genetic results back. 
It was a bit overwhelming. We found out I have a rare genetic condition that me, theoretically, in talking with cytogeneticists, it would mean that our conceptions would result, theoretically, in 88% of them would be miscarriages. So we, we have this baby in the womb, and we get this news, and like, what's going on? What, what, what about this baby? We began to battle significant fears about the baby in the womb. What if this baby ends in miscarriage as well? What if there's something wrong with the baby? What if, she, what if this baby is born with deformities? What if the baby is born and only lives a few minutes? We're assaulted by all sorts of fears. We decided and committed against any invasive testing. We didn't want any risk of harming this baby. Every week we fought our fears. I'll never forget our, our OBGYN our, um, had us come every week for an ultrasound from 12 to 20, uh, 40 weeks to check on, the, on this baby. Our family and friends were praying hard. And on June 14, 2013, God gave us the little girl that we named Wren. And she was normal. I'll never forget, my dad's a pediatrician, and I'll never forget him rushing in, you know, drove up. And, and took Ren into the corner of the room to check her out. Because he was so scared. Later that afternoon, a friend of mine, dear friend, some of these guys know, Bill Kittrell gave me a call and said, enjoy it, brother. All that pain is being swallowed up with joy. All that pain's being swallowed up with joy. Guys, that's what's going on right here in Sarah's, Sarah's story. All that pain is being swallowed up with joy. In the life of faith, we remember, we must remember, the best is always yet to come. This story is placed in our Bible, the whisper that for the Christian on the other side of sorrow is always joy. That's the truth of God's word. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God wants his people to laugh at the days to come, not because tomorrow doesn't have trouble, but because, because trouble will not last. All of our lives are headed to a day, a great swallowing day, if I could put it that way, a great swallowing of all of our sorrow, all of our sicknesses, all of our sins, and indeed death itself in joy. A swallowing enjoy. That's what's going on. That's where our lives are headed. Sometimes life feels like it's going off a cliff, but in fact, it is going towards this day, great day of swallowing up. This great day of celebration, as Isaiah 25 tells us, this great day of well-aged wine and meat and fat and all that you need, all that you would long for in a feast, but yes, also the covering of sin and shame, the conquering of death. Revelation 21 tells us that indeed it will be the Lord that wipes away every tear in that day. And that's where it's all going. That's where our lives are going. John Piper says it well. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. <laughs> there are rock slides and precipice and dark mist and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best are yet to come. The best is yet to come. 
That's what the Christian life is like. Yeah, there's lots of twists and turns and ditches too, but the best is yet to come. There's something whispering and pulling us along. How do we know for sure? How do we know for sure? This side of the cross, this side of everything, this much further along than what Abraham and Sarah saw. How do we know for sure? Because Abraham, greater son, Jesus Christ, was born for us. As Chris prayed a few moments ago, as the angels said to the shepherds, as we'll rejoice next month, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We have the guarantee right now. We have it by faith. This is the one who's going to swallow up everything into this feast of joy and celebration, the one who's going to conquer it all. I want to offer you the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a good news that is the core of Christianity. It's not that if you do these 10 things, your life will work out all right. It's not the secret to a successful marriage or a happy life or any of these things. It's the, the secret of Christianity is that there's one has come to conquer death. That there is life in him and no one else. The wrath of God remains on all of us because we've all sinned. But that Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God and to give us eternal life. If you come to him by faith, the promise is yours. And all these promises find their fulfillment in this wonderful one. Jesus Christ, who was born for us. Amen. Sarah had a son born to her. The whole world has a son born to them. And our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we do, we take God at his word. Everything falls into place. You know, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. And some of us, you get to, you're walking by faith. You might be walking by faith in a season of prosperity. I feel like that at times. Everything seems to be going according to plan. All the, you know, you walk through some seasons where none of your prayers are being a- answered, it seems like. You walk through other, other times where it seems like they're all coming in. Life is good. You might be in that test. You still got to walk through faith by that and that. Other, other, others of us may be in a season of trouble where everything seems to be going off course. In both, we're taking God by his word. We're walking by faith. We're clinging to the promise. We're not setting our hope on things here. George Mueller, famous man, famous missionary, ran an orphanage, famous for taking God at his word. He has this little appeal I think it's a wonderful appeal for all of us to continue walking this. He says, my dear Christian, will you not try this way? Everyone is, is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this? My dear brethren in Christ, I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which while surrounded by many difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace. That's the path. That's the secret. Because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. Let's pray. Father, Father, we we praise you and, and we worship you. Lord, we offer, to our, offer ourselves to you completely and sincerely. 
We don't want to play the game, God. We give you our lives. We cling to you by faith. We long to take up your word and to cling to it. We long to trust that you're, you'll always keep your promises to, to agree by faith that obedience is right and to wait and hope that the best is always yet to come. Lord, I thank you for these folks and thank you for this church. Lord, help us as we walk by faith together. Praise you in Christ's name.